Listener supported. WNYC Studios. It's Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright. Martin Luther King was assassinated on April 4th, 1968 in Memphis, Tennessee. He was buried on April 9th, today, during what's commonly called Holy Week in the run-up to Easter Sunday. And nothing about life in America would be the same after that week. The Atlantic Magazine's Van Newkirk has made a new podcast telling the history of this particular moment in the spring of 1968. And he says it's one of the most consequential weeks in American history. When you look at what happened um, in the actual hour when King was killed, you start seeing unrest and disturbances in Black communities across the country. And they last for days, actually become the largest, uh, some people call them uprisings, riots, unrest, whatever you want to call it, between the Civil War and the protests for George Floyd in 2020. Van Newkirk's podcast is called Holy Week, the story of a revolution undone. It charts the reaction to King's death in cities all over the country, events that laid the foundation of urban politics for the next 50-plus years. Even before King was killed on April 4th, each of the major players in the civil rights movement were facing a moment of great uncertainty. President Johnson's White House, the growing Black youth movements, and King himself, they were all at crossroads. For King and the organization he led, they were frankly in a crisis of identity. And he was losing support even among lots of Black Americans, especially young Black Americans, people who had, the movement had been going on for a decade at that point. And there were lots of people who sort of grew up with it in the background, Mm -hmm. uh, who saw all these big uh, changes legislatively, who saw these boycotts, but they were still living in poverty in in the ghettos and still didn't have opportunity. And they were looking to things like Black power, to leaders like Kwame Ture or Stokely Carmichael then, uh, or to the Black Panthers. So King was being seen kind of as... Uh, both the establishment in some places, but also he was reviled by the establishment in others. Uh, President Johnson and the white liberals who had previously supported the civil rights movement were also at an uncertain moment. LBJ had passed, you know, of course, these massive historic civil rights laws. He had launched his great society, um, Medicaid and Medicare and all the things that we think about today. And frankly, it didn't feel like any of that was working. Yeah, so he passes the Voting Rights Act in 65, and that's the one. He gets all the nice ink pens, and they hand it out to all the leaders, and it's the big moment, right? And then uh, a a couple weeks later, actually, that summer, uh, Watts goes up. Six days of rioting in a Negro section of Los Angeles left behind scenes reminiscent of war-torn cities. More than 100 square blocks were decimated. So you have the Watts Rebellion of 65, and every single summer after that, They have uh, rebellions, riots in major black communities across the country. And he in the White House, and I was able to talk to people in the White House for the show, he and people in the White House were sort of, uh, they were trying to figure this out. Why we did these things. Why uh, (laughs) are people rioting? We, We gave you the stuff. We did the things. And so in 68, they actually, the Kerner Commission report, which was Johnson's effort to try and figure out 
um, what had happened. And the commissioners came back and told him that, uh, yeah, it's happening because the country's racist. Um, and Which was literally the, the findings. It was literally, this is because of racism that this is happening. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> Which people weren't that's ready it. for. And uh, they call for really big billions of dollars in spending to eliminate racism and poverty. Uh, and that comes out a month and change before King was yeah. killed. Yeah. And the third then sort of important pillar of this is the emerging Black Power movement that young Black people in particular are starting to gravitate to away from King. And you give us a uh, a powerful window into that part of the story. On, on the day after King is assassinated, the rioting has begun and Stokely Carmichael holds just a remarkable press conference. Um, and you take us to it in your podcast. We hear him jostling with these reporters. We die every day. We die in Vietnam for the hunkies. Why don't we come home and die in the streets for our people? Black people are not afraid to die. We die all the time. We die in your jails. We die in your ghettos. We die in your rat-infested homes. We die a thousand deaths every day. So we're not afraid to die. Today we're going to die for our people. But you point out that there's like an uncertainty behind his bravado in that moment. What's the what's the question he's facing? First of all, what I see in that press conference is, is a young man who's grieving. Mm-hmm. Um, a young man who is grieving the loss of a mentor and friend uh, who is very angry and whose anger goes beyond, you know, just uh, what he's supposed to say mm-hmm. uh, as, as a revolutionary. He's promising race war. He's promising that there's going to be pyres for King on the street. Um, he is saying this is going to be the thing uh, that finally brings the revolution. And, but, you know, you look at what he had done the night before. He was on the streets uh, in D.C. Uh, the very first night of unrest in the city. And he was going around telling young black folks that they didn't have the firepower to mm-hmm. fight police and the military. He was ambivalent about it. And we tried to show through these two days that uh, he was really trying to wrestle with um, when the sort of the rubber met the road for his philosophy turning into something real, what would it mean to him? And I think you saw somebody who was trying to, really trying to make it real, but also he had just lost a very important person to him. Yeah, yeah. Everybody was grieving. It's Notes from America. We'll be right back. WNYC Studios is supported by Wondery's new podcast, Black History for Real. Introducing you to the most overlooked black history makers you should already know about. Historical tea is the hottest, and it pours the best. Hosted by Francesca Ramsey and Conscious Lee. Follow Black History for real on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen everywhere on 2.5, or you can listen early and ad-free on Wondery Plus starting 129. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. There's a lot going on right now. Mounting economic inequality, threats to democracy, environmental disaster, the sour stench of chaos in the air. 
I'm Brooke Gladstone, host of WNYC's On the Media. Want to understand the reasons and the meanings of the narratives that led us here? And maybe how to head them off at the pass? That's On the Media's specialty. Take a listen wherever you get your podcasts. One of the really powerful parts uh, of the podcast is that you talk to all these people who were kids at the time and were on the streets of D.C. Um, during these uprisings. And you really start to see the gap between the ideas of all these people, the President Johnsons and the Kings and the Carmichaels, and the realities uh, for these young people who are out there uprising. Vanessa Dixon is one of the people we meet Uh, 12-year-old at the time, I believe. Can you introduce listeners to her briefly here? Who was she and and where did she find herself on April 4th, 1968? She just was just a wonderful person to sit Mm -hmm. with. Uh, Native Washingtonian. Uh, She lived in uh, two different Black neighborhoods. One is the historic center of the 8th Street Corridor uh, in D.C. Um, And... She uh, just, you know, sort of grew up with the city. She loved it. She told us how she thought she invented go-go music. You know, she she just <laughs> loves the you place. She's she so did. much a part of it. Hey, she told us she 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 came outside with the pots and pans. <laughs> so we we trying to find a recording of it now. Um, but uh, she had three older brothers, uh, and the the brother that was closest to her in age, Vincent. Um, they were just they were always together. They raked leaves, they made money. The family didn't have a lot of money, so they made their own money. You know, they they carried people's groceries. They hustled. Mm-hmm. And they were living basically the life that the Kerner Commission says that was going on in inner city and black uh, communities. And so they were in that situation when the riots broke out on the night of April 4th. And you, you described there's this moment um, where Vanessa's brother, he's out looting um, a department store that they used to shop at. And he calls his mom and uh, and he tells her, I've gotten you a couple boxes of stockings in just the right size and just the right color, which is a moment that made me cry, I have to say. What do you want people to take from that kind of detail? It's one that stuck out for me um, as uh, somebody who just recently lost my mother. Um, I... I don't know. I think about like all the different details you can give about a, a riot, right? You can talk about the bricks going through stores. You can talk about the fires, and we do to some extent. Uh, but there's a lot of opining on what it means to go and loot or go and be out in the streets in one of these things. You don't hear about the kid who, yeah, he goes out and steals, and he feels nothing about it because he went and got a pair of stockings for his mom. Um that's the type of thing that I'm interested in because I'm interested in human motivation. And what tells you more about what's going through a person's mind, what moves them, what motivates them than how they feel about their mother. Mm. Um, And this is a person who clearly loved his mother enough so much in the middle of all this excitement. He decides this thing has been bothering him. His mother couldn't go and get the stocking she wanted all in the box because she had to go out and pick two out at a time because they didn't have any money. So he said, now I got the opportunity to do it. And that, to me, is a really special moment. Yeah. Is, is it the moment that Stokely Carmichael wants? Is it the revolution? I, I don't know that I have the answer to it. I mean, we hear people opining about looters, but also, like, revolutionaries opining about why people take to the streets. You know, that's one where I don't know if I came up with a, 
uh, an answer for myself. Um, you know, I think it clearly, what happened in 68 didn't end up, you know, destroying the halls of power. Um, it didn't end up, I think, the way Stokely described it in that press conference, at least. Um, but you think about little revolutions and think about what it means for a youth in D.C. to go out and run the streets and see the cops be powerless to deal with them. Um, and these people who had ex exerted this force and brutality over their lives, um, you see people, uh, they're saying black power, they're calling each other soul brother, calling themselves black for the first time. Mm. Um, and eventually, directly as, as a result of this, at least in D.C., D.C. gets home rule, self-government, and a, a black-led government. Um, those are things I think I don't want to discount. Um, and I, I think... Where I, where I land is that things can be revolutionary in different ways. Well, I mean, it's none of this is to say that people weren't grieving, you know, um, that this wasn't an act of mourning at the same time. Um, and I just wonder, 50 years later, talking to someone like Vanessa, you talking to all those folks who were out there, what do you think they were grieving and what, and are they still grieving it? What was it like to unpack it with them now? The, the grief still is so palpable and present. Uh, for everybody we talk to, just this sense, not just that the, a larger symbol for America, but something about themselves was altered or changed. All of them, they saw in King, I think, a sense of possibility. Even people who didn't really believe in what he believed in, even people who didn't love nonviolence, people who were agitating to be more radical and revolutionary, they saw in King sort of the last best hope for things changing, for, for, for having uh, the ability to go out and, and buy what they want, to have the jobs they wanted, to not live in substandard housing. And so when he was killed, there, was, there were two levels of grief. There was just a, this is a, you know, important black person who was killed. And we talked to people who knew King, obviously. They had that level of personal grief, but also just the avatar of, of an age. He was gone. Mm. You had an age. I think even the most cynical readings of the civil rights movement, this was a real transformational time for America, one where things that were previously thought impossible happened yearly, weekly. Mm. And people sort of grew into and grew up with these young people, this idea that... Uh, that things might be better next year. And that's an incredible, if you understand how radical that transformation in our lives is, and then the main symbol of that transformation is killed. How did this week that followed um, transform the cities in which um, these uprisings happened? I mean, we go in the podcast from D.C. to Memphis to Atlanta, all these black meccas. What's the legacy of that week in those cities? Well, a lot of them weren't as black then. Uh, so we're in the 60s were uh, the time sure. of what we call white flight. Uh, but the riots where there were uh, riots uh, accelerated that white flight and the creation of uh, the suburban politic in America. So uh, D.C. Uh, becomes Chocolate City, first gets the moniker in the early 70s. 
uh, a couple years after the assassination. Uh, Baltimore is trending to be a you know a majority black city at the time. Uh, you see white flight from Chicago, Detroit, Newark, and uh, basically you see the rise in the early seventies of cities with black mayors, and that's a direct consequence of what happened in the late 60s, particularly 68. But you also see sort of the seeds of uh, the things that go wrong in the cities. With all those people fleeing to the suburbs, there's a diminishing tax base. And essentially, you see them sort of become black islands where there's power within them, but they become starved of resources from the outside. Well, and there is, you know, like D.C. as an example, um, for a really long time, there were you could physically see the riots still. Like for decades, yeah. you could physically see places that just didn't get rebuilt, didn't get reinvested in. Actually, one of the reasons why I was interested in doing this, uh, my father was a, a mid he did a, a mid career PhD, um, which is a fun thing when you have uh, kids in middle school. <laughs> I, I, I won't be doing it for mine, um, but he Get it, he got a history PhD from from Howard, um, and so I would go up with him. And so I remember, and this was in the nineties. Um, I remember like Howard going down from that McDonald's, going down Seventh, yep. and you could still see then buildings that had been burned and hadn't come back yet. And it was like. I'd never seen that in a school book or anything, but it was just written on the face of the city. And that was 30 years after the riots. Yeah. Well, and then today, those same corridors of D.C. are some of the most strikingly gentrified parts of the city. I mean, in recent years, D.C. has really seen an influx of capital and, it must be said, of white people. And I just wonder if that came up in your conversations as well. Well, I'll say it's telling that I think every single person we interviewed who was on the streets in D.C., um, minus two, they live in PG County now. <laughs> they live in the, Prince George's the County, suburb, Maryland. Prince George's County, Maryland, where uh, a lot of black Washingtonians have been pushed out um, during in the last waves of displacement and gentrification of the city. Uh, so that right there, I think, tells a lot of the story itself. Where do you sit in this history yourself? I, you know, I know um, the shooting of Michael Brown and the subsequent uh, unrest in Ferguson in 2014 was a big turning point for you as a journalist. I, I wonder if you see any analogies between that time and the one you're covering now. I think there are some really strong parallels. Number one, you've got in 68, uh, there is a, a span of literally months between the killing of MLK, the uh, sh- pretty dramatic shift of white suburbanites um, towards Nixon and the election of Nixon. (laughs) And I think you see some of that happening today. Obviously, we had Donald Trump. Um, We've got uh, an ongoing reaction to what happened in 2020. We've got books being banned in Florida. Uh, So for me, I do think there are parallels. I think any time, I think history tells, any time there is a demand, um, a robust demand for even incremental uh, change regarding race in America. There is always, uh, as King liked to say, a backlash. Van Newkirk is the host of the new podcast, Holy Week, by The Atlantic. Van, thanks for coming back on our show and talking about this great work. Thank you for having me. 
Notes from America is a production of WNYC Studios. Follow us wherever you get your podcasts and on Instagram at Notes with Kai. Theme music by Jared Paul. Mixing this week by Mike Kutchman. Our team also includes Karen Frillman, Vanessa Handy, Regina Dehir, Rahima Nasa, Kusha Navadar, and Lindsay Foster-Thomas. Andre Robert Lee is our executive producer, and I'm Kai Wright. Thanks for spending time with us. 